Well, good morning. My name is Jay Freimeyer. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And like Logan said before, if you're a guest with us this morning, I'm so glad that you've joined us for worship this morning. Uh, I'd love to meet you if I haven't yet. And so feel free after the service to come by and say hi, introduce yourself. I would love to get to know you. Uh, If you're not a guest with us this morning, you're probably wondering why we're in John chapter 2. We had what we knew was coming eventually. Jeremy found out that he had to quarantine midweek, so we just did a flip-flop. I was preparing to preach next week this sermon, and he was going to preach the last half of John 1 today. We've just decided to swap, and so, you know, he's, he's good. They're just at home quarantining, uh, but we'll get John 2 today instead of the last half of chapter 1. Uh, let's pray before we move forward, and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you so much for moments like this when we can come together and sing songs of praise. We can sit under your teaching, under the word. We can take communion that reminds us that your body was broken and your blood was shed for us. So we thank you for this moment, for this time that you have given to us. Father, I pray that over the next few minutes that you would send your spirit to soften our hearts And help us to receive the word of God with thankfulness. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Our middle child, Eden, turns five years old today. And so if you've been around, yeah, five. It's a big one. It's a big one, guys. So she's the one that I'll bring up for announcements occasionally. And she's got got this bubbly personality. She loves all the things until she doesn't. But she mostly loves all the things. Um, She especially loves singing and dancing and dresses. So naturally, one of her favorite things of all time, probably her Super Bowl, is a wedding. She loves weddings. Uh, A few weeks ago, I officiated a wedding, and here in a couple weeks, I'm going to do another one. And so naturally, uh, weddings have been a topic of conversation in our home. And so recently, she's been saying things like, Daddy, can I marry you? And, you know, I respond, well, you know, mom might not like that, and that's not really how it goes. And so she just goes to next on her list, right? So she goes, well, well, can I marry Bubby then, which is her name for her brother? And I said, well, that's, that's not, you know, how it works either. So she says, okay, well, I'll marry Bennett from school, to which I reply, okay, you can marry me. All right, we're not, <laughs> we, we're not moving on to Bennett yet, all right? You're five. If I'm being honest, I've, I've never been a huge fan of weddings, right? So I've, I've been a part of enough to know that something goes wrong at every wedding. And, and I, I mean, as recent as a few weeks ago, I'm preparing the people I'm marrying. I'm saying before the service, like, something's going to go wrong. Just prepare for it and know it. That way, when it does, you knew it was coming. Like, something always goes wrong. Well, you know, there's always someone that's, you know, a little irritated at someone else, and sometimes it's a mother-in-law. It's, you know, this, it's just cringeworthy for me. Like, and you're, you're hanging around a ton of people you don't know, and as an introvert, that's like the worst thing in the world. So I just don't prefer them. Um, but we were having this conversation, me and a friend, a few weeks ago, and uh, when, I, when I shared this information with him, like, you know, weddings just aren't my favorite, I felt scolded in response because he loves weddings. He, like, he, he gets enthusiastic about going to weddings. So I asked, like, well, what do you like about weddings? I mean, I shared with him what I don't like about weddings. And, you know, he started to say that most of the weddings he used to attend were of sorority sisters of his wife, and most of them had 
incredible meals and all sorts of alcohol flowings. One of the weddings he was at had steak. I have never been to a wedding that served steak, all right? There's dancing after. I mean, if that was my experience, my typical experience, I would love them also, right? Weddings are unique ceremonies, they're special events, and they're very memorable. Some of the things we remember, if, you, I mean, if, you, if you're married in here, you look back on your wedding, you're not going to remember every detail, but there are things that stick out to you, right? There are things that come to mind. Some of those things are funny, like they weren't funny then, but they're funny now, right? In the moment, you're like, oh, this is the worst. They're funny now. Some are cringeworthy, and they're not so great. And that's where our text finds us this morning. Like my buddy, you know, who has incredible experiences at weddings, the wedding that we're about to look at in John chapter 2 is supposed to be this incredible event, a very memorable event. It was a huge celebration that is about to turn into a tragedy, incredibly cringeworthy until Jesus steps in. So I'm going to look back. Uh, if you haven't been with us for a few weeks, you know, we started walking through the book of John in Advent. We went through Uh, I think the first 14 or 15 verses of John 1, and then last week, I think uh, Jeremy did an overview of the first 18 verses, and again, since we're going to miss the last half of chapter 1 this morning, we're going to go back just a little bit, but if you haven't been around, I want to remind us that in John chapter 20, John tells us the purpose of this book in verse 30 and 31. He says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So he's saying, Jesus did a whole lot of other things. I didn't have space to write them all in this book that I'm giving to you. But he says, there are some that are written in the book. In, in verse 31, I think they'll be coming up here on the screens here in a second. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The entire book of John, uh, everything that we've seen in Advent last week, this week, everything moving forward needs to have this as its foundation. John has written so that you would see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. Just a quick overview of chapter one. At the very beginning, he shows us that Jesus was integral in creation, that he was involved in all of it. John the Baptist comes on the scene. Second John, we already see in this book, he says in verse 29, this is the Lamb of God. He's the one who takes away the sin of the world. And later he claims, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. At the end of chapter one, again, we'll get to it next week, we see that he's already got about five disciples with him. That's what I'm guessing. So we've got John, uh, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. I want to briefly touch on this interaction with Nathaniel because I think it sets the stage for this wedding in Cana. So at, already with these five disciples, we see that two of them, after Jesus calls them, calls them to himself, they immediately go find someone else, right? So Andrew goes and gets his brother, Simon, who's called Peter, and then Philip goes and grabs Nathaniel. And I want to, I want to read this interaction for us. So Philip says to Nathaniel, I'm going to paraphrase just a little bit. He says, we have found the one that's been written about from Moses in the law to the prophets, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth, to which Nathanael responds, no way, dude. Like, there's no way. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Is there anything good that can come from Nazareth? So he says, you don't believe me? Why don't you come? Why don't you come and see? See this man. So as he's approaching, Nathanael's approaching Jesus, 
Jesus looks up and he says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And so he perks up. He's got his attention. Nathaniel's looking at him like, how do you know me? And Jesus responds, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. And that was all it took for Nathaniel. In that moment, he believed. He says, it's you. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And again, this is my paraphrase. Jesus responds to him, bro, are you serious? Is that all it took? You believe because I said I saw you under a tree? He says, buckle up. Because you're going to see much greater things than this. And that, again, sets the stage for what's going to happen two days later in Cana. So we're entering the portion of John, which some are going to call the book of signs, through chapter 12. There are seven different signs that John shows us Jesus performs. So let's pick up again in verse 1 of our text this morning. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So the third day, when speaking in this fashion, they counted the day they were currently on. So in the same way that we would talk about Good Friday and Easter, that Jesus went to the cross on Good Friday and was risen on the third day, they count Friday as one, Saturday two, Sunday three. So two days later, uh, that's when Jesus rose from the dead. That's the same as here. Two days after the conversation with Nathaniel, here they are, they find themselves at this wedding. So as we walk through this text, I want, to look th- I want to look at this text through the eyes of three different characters or groups of characters to help us understand what Jesus is doing. And first up is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, she's invested in this wedding in some way. We don't know if this is close family friends or if they know each other from the community somehow, but it's clear by her request to Jesus and then in her response to the servants after his response to her that she has some type of responsibility in this wedding. So she's involved. They know these people at this wedding. And it's difficult to know exactly what Mary's request is when she says they have no wine. She could have experienced or expected a miracle, though I, I struggle to believe this because we're told that this is the first of his signs. This is the first miracle Jesus performed. She could have expected that. I, I'm not so sure, but she expects something. Joseph, the husband of Mary, isn't mentioned since the temple, uh, temple conversation with Jesus when he was 12 years old. So many commentators believe that Joseph was passed away, has passed away at this time. Um, I lean towards that position. Again, we're not going to know everything, but if that were true, then Jesus would no longer be seen as the son of Joseph, the carpenter apprentice. He would be seen as Jesus, the carpenter, caretaker of Mary. And so it's likely that Jesus would have been extremely resourceful. He would have been taking care of Mary and some of those around them. And I I lean towards this position. We can't be sure. Uh, But we do know that Mary is saying, help, we need help, we need you to fix this because of Jesus' response. Now, Jesus' response is surprising. It's a little jolting. It's a little shocking when he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, I want to be careful here. 
<laughs> if I use this phrase today with my wife or my mom or my grandma, I might get slapped, right? And you're laughing because you know it. Now, again, some commentators are going to jump through some hoops here, and they're going to say, well, you know, Jesus certainly didn't mean to do that to his mom. Like, you know, he, he probably meant ma'am, like, which in the South, it's an extremely polite greeting. And that's just, that's, he could have easily said, mother, I'll take care of it. You know, mother, give me some time. That's not how they talked. That it, it is not a cultural thing to say, woman, what is this to me? Woman, what, why are you coming at me this way? Woman, this is not for you to ask me. My hour hasn't come. So there is clearly a stiff arm. I don't think it's as harsh as we would receive it today. But he is creating distance here. Now, what is confusing is that he creates this distance with his mom. He says, woman, don't ask these things of me. My hour hasn't come. And he still performs the miracle. He still does it. So why are you talking to your mom that way, Jesus? Like, why, why say it like that if you're going to do it anyways? Right? Doesn't that make sense? So what is he doing? I want to see Mary here. I want to see how this would have landed on her. Now, whether it had already happened in other ways leading up to this point in Jesus' life or this was the beginning, there's distance being created and there's a distinction being made. And I believe Jesus is communicating that nobody gets an inside track to him. He's showing her and the disciples and those around that I don't submit to you, I submit to my Father. And so at some point, Mary had to see him no longer as my son, but as my Lord. And this might have been the beginning of that. But I bet it stung. As his mom, as the woman who bore him, who nursed him, who fed him as he slobbered on himself, who raised him into boyhood, she cared for him. Even, even Jesus' mom his brothers and sisters, those closest to him, do not get an inside track to tell Jesus what to do. It does not matter who you are. Now, there's good news for us this morning. On the other side of that coin is that it does not matter what family you come from, that nobody gets an inside track to Jesus. There's probably some of you in here this morning that may not know your mom or dad. Some of you in here this morning may wish you did not know your mom or dad. Some of you may have experienced abuse. Some of you wish you did not have the familial ties that you do. And what we see in this text is that it does not matter. That we all come to Jesus and believe in him by faith and receive the goodness of him apart from anything we can do or where we're from. It does not matter. That is incredibly good news. Jesus alludes to this in Matthew 12. Someone asked him about this, and he stretches out his hand in Matthew 12, 49, towards his disciples, and he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that is my brother and my mother and my sister. I think this was a hard lesson for Mary to learn, but one she seemed to receive in stride because I believe she responds in faith and says in verse five to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. 
We too must learn this, like Mary, to always be in submission to the will of the Father. So that's Mary. Next, I want to look at the bridegroom. Now, not much is said about him. We just see him briefly in passing. But I want to note that weddings in this day were a huge deal. Now, you may say that weddings today are a big deal, but I've never been to a wedding that lasted longer than a day. I I just, maybe they exist today, but I've never been to one. In fact, I mean, even the ceremonies I've recently performed, they're saying, hey, can you keep it to 30 minutes? Uh, And then we may or may not have some snacks afterward or a light meal, dance a little bit, we're done. so, So maybe three hours, four hours, if it's long. In this day, they lasted for days and days, up to a week, some two weeks long. So as I mentioned before, if, man, if, if this is the type of weddings we're going to, and food and wine is in abundance, and we're partying and celebrating this couple, I'm in. Are you in? We're in? That's, I mean, this sounds great. What are they doing for a week, man? A week? That's a long time. Weddings were a huge deal. Can y'all, some of y'all are planning weddings right now. Can you imagine planning a week-long wedding for your guests? That sounds crazy. But there was a problem. What should have been this incredible experience and joyous celebration of the bride and groom is about to fall flat because the wine is not in abundance. The wine is running out. Now, culturally, it was the responsibility of the bridegroom to provide for his guests. Now, this feels like a big responsibility. Uh, some of y'all have large families and you know, Brooke and I will have conversations like, hey, we should have, you know, so-and-so over. And we think, how are we going to feed all of them? Like, and then, I mean, we're just talking like three or four kids, right? And then I started thinking, that's probably how some of y'all feel towards us. <laughs> uh, but it's like, let's go to a park or something. I mean, we're talking large groups, a large group of people, extended family, friends, people in the community for a week long. This is a big endeavor. Now imagine with me along the way that that wine does run out. Now I'm speculating here quite a bit. I'm taking some liberties with the bridegroom. I believe that he knew how much wine he purchased. It was his responsibility. I believe he knew what, they, what he had. So if he were to fail in this regard, let's say midway through the wedding, we don't know exactly when it is, but let's say he failed midway through and the wine runs out. How embarrassing right? Everybody knew it was his job. How shameful. You're going to bring us here and then not provide? It gets worse than just shame, though. We have historical evidence showing that he had a legal obligation to provide for his guests. That was just the norm in this day. That's what they did for one another. Hey, you know, we had you over for Jimmy's wedding. We provided for you. You're going to provide for us. So it wasn't just shameful. He was opening himself up to a lawsuit. He could be sued. That's insane. But that's what he was facing. Now, again, I, I, I just believe that he's shaking in his boots. I believe he's anxious, that he's watching people have a good time. They're having this wine. They're toasting him. But he knows it's about to run out. We don't know If more people came than expected, we don't know if they drank more when they got there. We don't know. We don't know if he was poor and just couldn't afford it. We just know that it's running out. Now, imagine with me now what he must have felt. When the master of the feast looked at him, the master of the feast shut the party down. 
He says, all right, y'all need to stop. Stop what you're doing. Where's the bridegroom? He's looking for him. Where is he? I mean, I think his heart is sinking right now. Like, am I about to be called out? Like, are the lawsuits about to begin? Like, what, what is happening here? He looks at him. He says, stop everything. Bridegroom, you come here. I, I think he's panicking in this moment. He, he calls him forward. And before everyone, this is what he says. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then they serve the bad stuff. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, what a relief for the bridegroom. What a relief. But also, confusion. Like, what? No, we stopped serving the good stuff like hours ago or on Monday. Like, we're, we're out, right? This isn't from him. Now, we'll get back to this in a second. I want to make just a brief comment on the wine. Now, I, I know what many preachers do to this text and the hoops they jump through to convince their listeners that this was just really good grape juice. And I just don't think that's the case. Um, I understand if you want, if you'd have chosen to abstain from alcohol personally for a number of reasons. Um, maybe it's a sin struggle for you. Maybe it's just above reproach. Maybe you just see it as this is a wise thing to do. But I don't think from the scriptures we are given a mandate to not partake. And I think it's clear from what he says, when everybody serves the good wine first, he's not just meaning good tasting wine, like good in flavor. He means this is the strong stuff and not like super strong, just like what you would expect for wine. Everyone serves the good wine, like what you would expect wine to taste like first. And then he implies some level of inebriation after they've drunk for a little bit, they're happy, they're feeling good. Bring out the Welches now. It doesn't matter. People don't care as much. That's what he means. It's not that one tastes good, one tastes bad. It's that one tastes like it should. One's a little watered down, right? That's, that's just not more complex than that. And what does he say about Jesus' wine? This is the good stuff. This. He stopped the party. Jesus. He created the good stuff. In verse 11, this, John tells us, was the first of his signs. Now, back to the bridegroom. From all we can tell, the only people that know that a miracle has occurred are Mary, Jesus, the servants who physically drew the water out and were like, that's not, that's not wine. We drew out water. They knew. And the disciples. That's it. The text tells us the master of the feast didn't know where it came from. And I don't believe the bridegroom did either. So in my initial reading of this text, I was a little irritated at the bridegroom, right? Because not only did he fail to provide... He didn't live up to what he was supposed to do. Then when the master of the feast calls him forward and says, man, you serve the good stuff now. He didn't say, no, no, it wasn't me. It was that guy. Like I, in my initial reading, I thought, he's taking credit for what Jesus did. Now, as a total aside, we do that, don't we? Like, we can do that too. Like, we will take credit for something God has done in us. But the more I studied this text, I think he was oblivious. I think he was caught off guard. I think he didn't know. So what a relief he must have felt when the party stops, Master of the Feast calls him forward, and he praises him. It's like he got an A-plus on a test he didn't take, right? Now, that's not a good system for success, 
to not take tests and hope you get an A+. But when they come in life, we take them, right? If something good comes your way and is undeserving, you're like, yes, yeah, that's pretty great. So in that moment, he doesn't like stop the show. He says, okay, you know, it kind of goes on. And that's all we hear. Now, at some point later, he surely found out, right? Word spread. Jesus provided for him in abundance without him even knowing it. But what a good reminder for us this morning that God does this sort of thing. Uh, I think I mentioned this quote uh, in a sermon previously, but John Piper has once said that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you're likely aware of about three of them. How remarkable is that? That God is working and moving and doing things in us and over us and through us, and we might know a few of them. Praise God. All right, so we've done Mary and the bridegroom, and now let's look at the disciples. So again, I believe we've got Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And remember what the interaction was like with Nathaniel, that he assured him he would see greater things in the days ahead. Two days later, here we are. So this wedding celebration is a public setting in that there are other people are around, but it's clear that not everybody sees what's happened. So this is a very quietly performed miracle in the midst of this wedding. He does it behind the scenes. He's not ready yet. When he says, my hour has not yet come, he's not ready yet to tell the masses who he is. He does it quietly. So then what was his aim? Why would he do it quietly? Why wouldn't he want everyone to know who he is right now? There are a number of ways we could go here. Like when you, when you start to unpack this text, there's, there's so much here. When, when they mention the third day, like what is the most memorable third day in the scriptures? The resurrection, right? So is he alluding to that? The jars for purification and the size of the jars. He made up to 180 gallons of wine. Now, was that necessary? 180 gallons? But is he alluding to these old purification jars being the old covenant and being obsolete and that he makes something new and better and the new covenant is here? Maybe. He fills them to the brim. Way more, way more than you would need for a week-long celebration. 180 gallons of wine. It's possible that he's doing these things, and I think it's actually likely, but I don't think it's the main point. But one commentator says this about those things that I just mentioned, and I think we have this quote for you guys on the screens. He changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity, the water of Christlessness into the wine of the richness and the fullness of eternal life in Christ, the water of the law into the wine of the gospel. That's pretty good stuff right there, right? How about Mary's statement to the servants when she says, do whatever he tells you? We could do a lot worse today than by just following this statement. Do whatever Jesus tells you, right? We could do a year-long sermon series on doing what Jesus says. Now, a lot of these things, they're, they're helpful and they're good, but I think the main point, I wanna, I wanna go back to John 20. John wrote to show us that Jesus is the Christ, He's the Son of God, and that if we believe in him, we'd find life in his name. And I think that begins here in John chapter 2. For his disciples, what does it tell us that their response was? They watched what he did, and it caused them to believe. They believed in his name. 
Everything about this account culminates with this. Jesus has begun to display his glory. He's manifesting his glory. So even if it's privately or quietly at this public event, he's manifesting his glory and it's leading to belief in him. So in light of that, do we read passages? Do you read passages today like this and do you marvel at him? Does it cause you to worship him? If nothing else today, gaze at the glory of Christ the sign that he's performed here, and believe. Believe in him. Now, we've obviously got a much more full picture of who Jesus is and what he's done than Mary had or the disciples had. We've got the full word of God, and we can see clearly that he's more gracious, he's more kind, he's more loving, more merciful than we could ever imagine. At various places in the scriptures, we see that wine is associated with joy or with happiness. Like in Psalm 104, 15, he says, you bring forth wine to gladden the heart of man. Now couple that with the wedding celebration and this event was meant to be entirely life-giving. It was meant to be a party where they just celebrate and have fun. But like all earthly things, the wine ran out. The wine ran out. Now some of us in here, I think, are tempted to chase fleeting things, momentary things, things that run out, things like maybe, maybe you're in an unhealthy relationship or pursuing the next step up on the corporate ladder or chasing wealth or maybe for you moms, like creating this perfect idea of what your family needs to be. Um, maybe it's frequent partying. It will run out. And what you need this morning is not more of that thing you're chasing. If you're chasing that next promotion or more money, you don't need to keep chasing that thing because it doesn't give you what you want it to give you. What you need this morning is Jesus. That's it. We all need Jesus. Only he satisfies. Only he is enough. Now, remember that whole 10,000 thing that I mentioned a few moments ago. What's God doing in you today? And if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, praise God that he's given you eyes to see and ears to hear that he is the Christ. Praise him for that. If nothing else this morning, if you leave with nothing else, praise God that you know Jesus. That's enough. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to challenge you a little bit. I want to ask, what do you do with passages like this? C.S. Lewis is often credited for saying that Jesus has to be either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. He was either a master deceiver, convincing everyone around him that he was someone he's not. Okay, so he could be a liar. He could be a crazy person. He said a lot of big things, called himself the son of God. He did a lot of wild things. So he was either a liar, he was crazy, or he actually was who he said he is. He's Lord. Obviously, Lewis makes that argument that he is Lord. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. So if you've yet to trust in Jesus, yet to believe these things, I implore you this morning to submit your life to him because we believe, we confess here, 
unashamedly that he is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God, he is the Messiah, and that we find life in his name. And as I mentioned before, if nothing else, if this just leads to a cup of coffee, conversation, if we can meet after, I would love to do that. And start with the question, what does Jesus turning the water into wine have to do with me? And in a word, I would say everything. This is the Son of God who's come to take upon himself the sins of the world. Look to him and believe. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that you are more good, you are more kind, you are more merciful, you're more loving than we could ever believe. We praise you, God, for accounts like this, the beginning of your ministry when you turned the water into wine, that you performed these signs not to entirely hide yourself, but you began to show those around you and us today who you really are. If you had not done that, God, we would not know you. If you did not reveal yourself to us, we would be still in our sins. But you've intervened. You sent Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, and you've caused us to believe. So God, we praise you for that. We thank you. For anyone here stuck in sin, I pray that this morning you would help call them out. Cause them, Lord, to turn from their sin and turn to you. And anyone who has yet to follow you, would you cause them to believe this morning for the very first time? We love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.